So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And may the Lord bless this somewhat difficult passage to understand to our understanding, our comprehension this morning. Let's pray and ask for that illumination. Father, we realize that sometimes it's difficult for us to, to understand exactly what a passage means until we sort of step back and we look at it in the context, the broader context of Scripture, that we don't ever take anything out of context, that we are so familiar with your word and the way that you present it and the things that you say that we don't get off on a tangent that, that would lead us in the wrong direction. I just pray that that is what will take place this morning as we consider two seeming opposites, exclusivism and inclusivism, and how they relate, how they harmonize in your kingdom and in your plan. We will give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the primary sources of divisiveness, disunity, struggles within the church are the attempts to understand what I am going to refer to this morning as inclusive exclusivity. And I know that's kind of a mouthful. But it is a distinction that is so important because when we get it wrong, when, when, when we miss what it means, then we're going to fall into either a ditch on the left side or a ditch on the right side. We're going to fall into a ditch and the church is going to end up with problems and ultimately disunity. So that's really what we're looking for this morning. We're looking for the understanding of unity with these two concepts in mind. So let me give you an example. And there's a reason that I chose this example. It's out of the sports world. And it, I think, will help us understand right at the very beginning of the of sort of the boundaries when I'm talking about this inclusive exclusivity. I want you to imagine something. Now, I, I'm like most of you. I really enjoy the Olympics. I happen to really like the Winter Olympics. But this particular example is from the Summer Olympics. So I just want you to imagine something. Let's just take one of the disciplines, one of the sports. Let's take swimming. And let's even go a little bit closer. And let's talk about women's swimming. Okay? Now, I want you to imagine, I don't know if they actually do this, but I want you to imagine that prior to the games actually starting, prior to the competition, that all the women who are going to be involved with the various events of swimming all gather together in one room. Now, I would present to you that that is one of the most exclusive groups of people on the face of the planet. Because there are criteria that need to be met in order for them to be there. In fact, one of those, traditionally at least, for hundreds of years has been that they're all women. And secondly, is that they are the best at what they do. They're, they're the top in their field, in their country, and they've gathered together to compete for the, the, the best in the world, if you will. So when that group gathers together in that room, they are the most exclusive group, or at least one of the most exclusive groups of people in the world. But they are also one of the most inclusive groups 
of people in the world. And, and the reason is because they come from every country, every nation, every walk of life, every race, every color, every ethnicity, every culture, every language, every religious or, uh, or financial or educational or social or political background. They are a diverse group of people and yet they are all brought together. So there's an amazing inclusivity within the exclusivity that we see. Now the problem occurs, and this is the reason I chose this particular example, a problem occurs when we start messing with or changing or expanding or contracting the boundaries of either exclusivity or inclusivity. In other words, can you imagine what a joke it would be if there were no, they, it didn't matter as far as uh, whether or not they were an accomplished swimmer or not. Any novice who could barely swim the length of the pool could enter in and be included in those Olympic Games. It would make the whole thing a farce. That's not what those games are about. So therefore, we need to keep those standards of exclusivity. But by the same token, if you start changing the standards of inclusivity and you start saying, well, you can't come because of you're of this religion or you can't come because you're of that political background or you start excluding people for the wrong reasons, once again, you more than likely will have an international incident on your hands. And, and, and what if all reason and logic and even science is thrown to the wind and you start allowing Men who identify as women to, to compete in the games against women. Well, unfortunately, we have seen that travesty played out upon the world stage and we're still watching it unfold. So in other words, what I'm saying is that there is an exclusivity and an inclusivity, but it is set. There are standards, and as long as those standards are maintained, then there's a harmony, there's a balance between them. Well, I hope to make the point this morning that that's the way it is with Christianity. That's the way it is with the church. There is a described, a prescribed exclusivity about Christianity, but within that exclusivity, there is an amazing inclusivity. And we need to be able to know the difference between the two. And actually, after we come to grips with that, we're going to step back and ask the larger question is how do we know the difference? How can we discern when there is someone who should be included or shouldn't be included? How do we know that? And that, of course, is the problem John's going to have in our text this morning. So uh, let's, let's, let's get to the text because we, we need to kind of jump into this now. These two verses may, you know, they may not seem like all that special to you, but they do have a distinction. These are the final two verses in what is known, in Luke's gospel, in what is known as the Galilean ministry. It's the second major division coming to a close here. With the next verse, verse 51, he will turn his face towards Jerusalem. And what is known as the Perean ministry sometimes begins. And it's a wonderful, it's a rich, it's full of teaching and parables about the kingdom. One of the most beloved parts of scripture. Well, we're just now finishing the second major division in Luke's book, which is the Galilean ministry. We've been there since the third chapter. The first, of course, the first two chapters, the nativity narrative that Luke gives us. So it has that distinction. And so therefore, there are several themes that Luke has been developing in this part of his gospel that are sort of coming to a head here. And I want to just briefly point them out. 
Uh, if you've been here for at all, you know that one of those, in fact, it's probably the primary theme that Luke has been developing is that Jesus is the supernatural miracle working son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is not just a man. He is not just a teacher that he is God incarnate. And he has really been making that point through a variety of different ways. Well, then we have seen a second theme just recently start to develop. And that is that this this God in the flesh is going to suffer and be rejected and be killed at the hands of mortal men. And we're trying to get our heads wrapped around that. And the disciples are struggling with that too. Which is the third theme, more or less, that we've been seeing. And that's the confusion of the apostles. They're confused about the person of Jesus. They're confused about his ministry and purpose. They're confused about the kingdom that he has brought. And they're confused about their own place in that kingdom. And we're going to see that manifest again in our text for this morning. But to zoom in a little bit closer, we actually, and I'll make this clear when we get into the text, we are actually in the middle of a thought. There's a continuation of thought from what we looked at last week. And I don't have time to go into the intricacies of what we looked in last week. If, if, if you feel lost in it, I, I would encourage you to jump on the internet and listen to that sermon, either on the podcast or on the video. Um, because we established some, uh, some, some, uh, some aspects. In other words, the, the disciples are on the way back from the Mount of Transfiguration. And on the way, they have an argument about who is greatest in the kingdom of God. And that there just shows you that they really don't understand the nature of this kingdom. But Jesus calls them on it. And and then he produces a child and brings it into their midst and says that if you really want to be great, true kingdom greatness is represented by this child. It wasn't just the age or the innocence of the child. It was what the child represented. He represents humility, a humble heart, the lowest probably in the whole household. He represents someone who is totally dependent on his parents and trusts them completely that they will look after him and take care of him. All of these are characteristics that are vital as far as a Christian is concerned. And, and then thirdly, the child represents the marginalized, the, the, the meek, the, the, the broken, the, the poor in spirit. Those that Jesus says in the Beatitudes are to be blessed if you are in that state of being. So therefore, just to put it in a nutshell, the child represents the, the, the kingdom, the kind of kingdom dweller Jesus wants to occupy his church. Now, what we notice, and, and I used an analogy last week, uh, uh, kind of built on the parable of the sower, not exactly uh, the same uh, kind of a story, but it was more of a story of sanctification, analogy of sanctification, that there are two soils, and each one of us, to one degree or another, have both of these soils in our hearts. There's the soil of pride, the residual of the old man, the old woman, the flesh that we struggle against. And then there's the soil, the good soil, the soil of the kingdom. We call it the soil of humility. And we can take the exact same virtue, the exact same principle, like greatness. What does true greatness mean? We can plant it in the soil of pride and what you end up with is contention and disunity and an argument about who's the greatest. And then you can take that same and you can plant it in the kingdom soil 
and you have unity within the church. And that's exactly what Jesus has just said in the 48th verse. Because what he has said is he said, whoever receive, embraces, uh, takes into their fellowship, this child, one like this in my name, also receives me. It's exactly as if you receive Christ. And the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. And so Jesus says, this is really the heart of God. Okay? And, and so he describes what unity within the church actually is. It is a bunch of people who have humble hearts, that there's more humility in their heart than there is pride. We'll never get rid of the pride until we go to heaven. But there's more humility, and we're learning that. The process of sanctification, as John MacArthur says, is the progressive victory or triumph of humility over pride. So we're moving from the soil of pride to the soil of humility so that the virtues of Christianity pointed in, I mean, planted in our soil are going to bear good kingdom fruit. And so it's when a church that is filled with people, that's the dominant uh, um, um, condition of the heart. And, and Jesus brings one of his own, another one with that humble heart. There is perfect unity. It's as if they came home. And many of us have said that about this church. It's like coming home. I, I felt like I've always belonged here. And the reason is because there's kindred spirits. There's hearts that are have the same degree of humility. But if if one of those little ones is brought into a, a fellowship that's proud, and, and boy, I tell you what, you immediately have conflict or vice versa. So with the, the discussion that is on the table at the end of our last passage is Unity and what is unity within the church? So with that said, let's jump into what John says because John has something to say about what Jesus just said. Let me repeat the last, the 48th verse and then we'll get into the 49th one. Jesus says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And then we read in the 49th verse... John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. So let's kind of take that apart because basically I think John has maybe that was too blanket of a statement. Maybe that inclusivism is is too broad. And, and, And I want to ask who actually is included in this. So let's take it very carefully as we go through it. John answered, Master. First of all, notice that now John is in the hot seat, right? We're used to Peter being there. Peter's the one's always sticking his foot in his mouth. Well, in the next two blunders, John is going to play a prevalent part in this, and he seems to be alone here. Well, John answers Jesus. Now, do you notice anything about that word? It's, it's a good translation. The Greek word is, means that somebody's asked a question, and you answer the question. Well, Jesus didn't ask a question. You look back. There's no question that's hanging in the air. So when that word is used that way, it means that it's a continuation of the previous thought. In other words, Jesus has just made a statement that can be interpreted depending on how you identify the child, all right? It can be somebody completely that doesn't believe in God that is an egregious, sinful lifestyle. And if that's the way you identify the child, you can use this passage to say, whoa, that needs to be, that person needs to be accepted, not just to hear the gospel in the church, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying that. 
but to be a member of the church, to, 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 to fold into the fellowship of the church and, and per, it perhaps even be leadership in the church. Well, there, there's some criteria for that. And so John has that question in his mind. And so it's almost as if he is saying, well, well, well Lord, is, is, are there any exceptions to that rule that you just stated? And so John answers Jesus in that way, and it's a continuation of thought. Notice also that he calls Jesus master. Now, the only reason that I mention this is that if you were reading the synoptic gospels in comparison, you would see that Luke is obviously borrowing from Mark here, or they're both borrowing from the same source. Because almost every word in this verse is identical to the way Mark has it, except for this word. So Luke consciously changes what Mark says, teacher, to master. And, and, and that is an address, even though you'll find the word master in all the different gospels, Luke's the only one who uses it as an address of Jesus. And, and the only thing I wanted you, want you to see is that is an exaltation of Jesus. He, he, even though we're talking about humility, even though we're talking about the most humble man that's going to the cross, he doesn't want you to forget that this is the one you saw up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration and you saw his Shekinah, the glory of God there. He just wants to keep you informed that that's the one we're talking about. So he refers to him as master. So he goes on. John answered, master, we saw someone. Now notice that neither John nor Luke nor Mark nor anybody tells us any more information about this someone. We don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. We don't know whether he's a Jew or whether he's a Gentile. We don't know where this happened. We don't now we don't know how long ago this happened, and we don't even know who we is or the we are, okay? There's more than one. John's with somebody. He doesn't tell us who that we is. And he doesn't tell us why he hasn't told Jesus about this before now. Why Why is just coming out? So in other words, it kind of creates a mystery about who this person is. Now, some people think that the reason that John brings this up now is because he's got a guilty conscience. This has been brewing in him, and, and, and he hasn't told Jesus, and now he's got the opportunity, so he, he, he wants to bring it uh, uh, before him. Others don't seem to have a very high opinion of John, and so they say that this is just actually, he's trying to change the subject. That Jesus has rebuked them, he's embarrassed, and he doesn't want to talk about it anymore, so he just talks about something completely different. That, that's not it. This is closely associated with what Jesus just said. There is a much deeper reason, and, and the reason has to do with inclusiveness in the fellowship, the kingdom of God, and exclusiveness. And John's a little confused about what that means. Well, he goes on and he says, uh, we, we saw someone casting out demons. Now, if there's a mystery about the man, there's no mystery about what he's doing. And don't miss the fact that casting out demons has been kind of an important part of this part of Luke's gospel because you remember Jesus sent out his disciples two by two and gave them the power to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And then just recently, nine of those apostles are trying to cast out a particularly nasty demon and they failed. Here, this man, who no one knows 
is succeeding. And, 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 and that's very odd. And so therefore, he's casting out demons and John doesn't understand something. He doesn't understand how he's doing it. Under what power? And when he calls upon the name of Jesus, is he really calling upon the name of Jesus, which is what he says next? That he was casting out demons in your name. Now, I think, and again, this is conjecture, but it's an educated guess. Um, By this time, this is the end of the Galilean ministry. So we know that the Sermon on the Mount, which was in Galilee, has already occurred in, in Matthew. So we know that the teaching that is there is something that John has already heard and probably multiple times. It's the teaching that Brother Will read for you in the moment of the word. Let me just read a little of it. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your names? And then while I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness. Now, in John's mind, I think, he's saying, well, okay, this guy, because he's not part of of us, and we don't know who he is, he's one of those, Jesus, that you are going to say in the end, I never knew you. And yet, he's out there casting out demons in your name and doing all this stuff. What's with this? And how are we supposed to process this? And how are we supposed to make the discernment between who is one of your little ones And who is outside there doing this in your name? Now, it all keys on what the meaning of in your name is. And if you'll permit me, I'm going to wait and deal with that when we get to Jesus' response. But let's continue in what John says. He's casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Okay, it's a good translation, because the Greek actually just simply says we hindered him. But the verb hindered is in what's known as an imperfect tense, meaning it never gets completion. Meaning they tried to make the man stop. They told him, stop doing that. Stop throwing the demons out in the name of Christ. And he wouldn't do it. Now, doesn't that bring an interesting situation? I don't have time to go down that rabbit trail. But there's a very interesting situation here. Not only does this man have the power to throw out demons, and by the way, demons are very powerful beings, as we've already seen. Not only did the disciples who were given the authority to cast out demons fail in doing so, but now John, one of the apostles, tells the man to stop, and the man says no. He is so convicted about what he has been called to do, that he's not going to stop. I mean, th- th- this is very interesting. So, so we, we know that even though he, he fell under, and, and again, just to tell you, I don't think that full apostolic authority is in place yet. But, you know, he could, you could say he fell under apostolic authority and said no. He, 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 he was not going to stop casting out demons. And so then we, we see that after John says we tried to stop him, he gives the reason, and, and here's the sort of the crux of this whole verse. He says, for he, because um, he, he does not follow with us, because he's not one of us, because he's not one of our group, our close-knit group of followers. Now, the ones who are at this time following after Jesus would be the 12, obviously, 
the women that were ministering to their needs that we talked about uh, several months ago. Um, Probably a very good group of disciples. He's getting ready to send out 72 of them to do what he sent the 12 out to do. And more than likely, a good number of disciple wannabes who are going to eventually desert Jesus and his teaching. So that's a pretty good entourage. And this man is not one of them. This man is an unknown. So that, see, that's the problem with John. John probably, as, as much as he loves Jesus, is, is seeing this man to be some kind of a threat, some kind of an enemy to the kingdom. But his criteria for exclusivity is all wrong. It has nothing to do with the fact that, well, what kind of, of fruit does the man bear? Or, or what kind of soil is he planted in? Or what's his heart? Or uh, what's he teaching? Is he teaching the same gospel or another gospel? No, he just makes a blanket statement because he's not one of us. Because he doesn't belong to our little church or doesn't follow our doctrines. He's not part of our denomination. Then he, he's got to be an enemy. And so... John makes a, an error in his judgment. Well, before we go on, let's, uh, let's see if we can uh, bring this to uh, sort of summarize it. First of all, Jesus has, before this passage, and when we looked at last week, Jesus has made what can be interpreted as a broad, almost all-inclusive statement of who should be received into the fellowship received by the apostles, and therefore we assume into the fellowship of the church that they will be the foundations of. Okay, And so it almost seems like anyone who fits the bill, and whatever your description of a little one is, whatever fits that bill, but if you receive him or her, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. Well, you can delve into that and you can just by logic see it's impossible to receive God if there's egregious sin involved, right? But nonetheless, that's kind of the basis of the problem. And John has said, now, wait a minute, does that include everybody? And, and in a sense, what he is asking is the very same thing we're going to talk about this morning. Okay, where is the inclusivity of the kingdom of God? And where is the exclusivity of the kingdom of God? What's the difference between the two? What's the harmony or the tension between the two? And how do we discern who is following Jesus, who is doing things according to his name, and who is not? Well, Jesus is going to kind of surprise us, I think, with the answer that he comes back with. Notice what he says in the 50th verse. But Jesus said to him that Bud is adversative. He's disagreeing with him. He's, he, he's saying the opposite. And, and also the way the Greek uh, uh, sentence is worded, it would put an emphasis on the saying part of this. So this sounds like he said it strongly. There's a strong adverse uh, response here. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. Now, that's in, it's directly a response to when Mark says, Wait, we tried to stop him. Okay, we, we tried to stop him. And Jesus now is saying, don't stop him. Right? Again, I think that this probably surprised John. And then he goes on and he says this, For the one who is not against you is for you. Now, 
again, that can really easily be taken out of context, and it has. It is okay. Anyone who is not working against you is for you. So it doesn't matter what they actually believe. It doesn't matter what their lifestyle is. As long as they're saying, I love Jesus, then everything is fine. They're for you. They're following the same way. What does it mean to be for Jesus, and what does it mean to be against him? That's the, the whole idea that is coming up, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus responds in a way that could be interpreted, unfortunately, as being all-inclusive, right? But that's not, I don't believe that's exactly what he means by that. That's not the the way that um, it it is expressing. So let's take a little look at the words that he's saying here, the way that he's saying it. Um, when he says, for the one who is not against you is for you, the, the you there is in the second person plural. So, yes, he's talking to John, but he's not talking just to John. He, he's talking to all the apostles. And since he's talking to the apostles or the foundations of the church, he's talking to all of us. Okay, so this is a lesson for us all to learn. Um, so, he He says, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, I believe, and again, I'm reading this into this a little bit, but I don't see how Jesus could say that if he didn't know this man in some way. I don't mean cognitive knowledge in his humanity. I don't mean that they've had a a discussion, uh, like, for instance, the gathering demoniac who Jesus said, go out and tell everybody about the kingdom of God or or what God has done for you. I don't believe that it's necessary there, but I believe in his divinity. There there are no secrets between the members of the of the Trinity. Uh, they're one being. So if the Holy Spirit is working through the power of this man, this man is throwing out demons in the name of the Holy Spirit, then guess what? In his divinity, Jesus knows about it. So I think Jesus knows that this man is is not one of those that he is eventually going to say, I never knew you. Uh, I, I believe there is a knowledge here of this particular man. Okay. Which brings our attention to what does it mean when John says he was casting out demons in your name and I tried to stop him. Well, when we talk about doing things in the name of Jesus, it can kind of mean two different things. On the one hand, and unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this is thrown around so much today. It's almost like it's a magical incantation. That by naming Jesus or throwing Jesus into the demand, you can force God to do what you want to do. <laughs> you know, when I think about this, I, I think of uh, the book of Acts and the sons of Seva, or Skeva, if you want to pronounce it that way. Do you remember how that turned out when they were actually trying to do things in Jesus' name? This is what they said. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They didn't know Jesus from the man of the moon. They're just watching Paul cast out demons. And they say, hey, we want some of that. And so in the name of that Jesus, you know, be gone. Throw it out of a demon. Remember what happened to him, don't you? (laughs) Let me just read it. I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of scriptures. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's what happens, brothers and sisters, when you use the name of Jesus 
as a magical incantation. It also leads to doubt and disillusionment because so many people are teaching, oh, you just name it and claim it. You just say it and it is so. The Word of Faith movement says if you have a word and you say it in the name of Jesus, then absolutely it's got to be. And then when it isn't, you become disillusioned and, and, and you lose faith and doubt. But Jesus never promised that. That's not what in his name means. Rather, we need to go back to the Upper Room Discourse in John. And many of you were here for that study. When Jesus makes these kinds of statements, extraordinary statements. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, once again, I can say something. I I want, you know, those buildings, three buildings out there to be built right now in the name of Jesus. And when it doesn't happen, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Well, that's not what that means. To do something in the name of Jesus, to pray in the name of Jesus, to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus means to do it according to his essence. In the name of someone is in his essence, according to his will, according to his purpose, according to his plan. It has nothing to do with you and what you want to accomplish. It is Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, accomplishing his purpose through you. And if the two are in absolute sync with each other, then whatever you say in that name, in that essence, he's going to do. And if he wants to pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea, if that's his purpose and he wants to do it through you, then guess what? He's going to do that through you and a mountain's going to get picked up and thrown into the sea. But let me tell you something. I don't care how much you use his name as an incantation. If he doesn't want to throw that mountain into the sea, it's not going to budge. And that's the great problem that so many people run into in the church. So this man, I believe, is is actually using the name of Jesus in the spirit and the meaning of Jesus. I like the way that William Hendrickson, you know, I quote from him quite a bit. He says, with this man, the phrase in Christ's name was not a magical formula. It was reality. So we've learned some lessons here. I think we have learned, we're kind of starting to identify the ditch on the left, the ditch on the right, and the narrow path that we walk. First, we don't want to put God in a box. We can't put God in a box. God can do what he wants to do within the confines of his godhood, right? And so we're not going to be able to say, hey, well, listen, God only works with those who follow our doctrine. God only works according to our denomination or our church or the way we see things. God can't do it outside of that. No, God can Okay, So therefore, there is a a broader inclusiveness that doesn't depend on people being exactly like we are. But, 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 don't fall into the ditch on the other side. Because there are certain criteria. There is an exclusivity to the ones God uses. And, And it's God's power that is operating. So we don't want to fall one way or the other or throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to recognize That there is an inclusiveness in the church and there is an exclusiveness as well. Let me see if I can describe that because that's where the real problem in this passage and the way it is so often um, interpreted comes from. Okay? Um, Here in the 50th verse, for instance, Jesus says, the one who is not against you, meaning against us, is for us. Right? Well, if we turn over to the 11th chapter of Luke, Just a couple of chapters away, Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Huh? What does that mean? Here he says, whoever is not against me is for me. And there he says, whoever is not for me is against me. Which one is it? And how do the two relate to each other? So basically, even though this sounds very inclusive, that sounds very exclusive. And let me just fortify that so you know that I'm not taking this out of perspective. The kingdom of heaven, the church of Jesus Christ, is among the most exclusive organizations on the face of the planet. If you don't believe me, just turn to Scripture. Matthew 7 again, Will read it earlier. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke 18, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Guess what? That's exclusive. Now, he goes on, and sometimes he gives us statements of exclusivity and inclusivity at the same time. Back in the 8th chapter of Matthew, this is what he says. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's amazing. That means Gentiles from every walk of life, from every corner of the earth, are going to come into the kingdom of heaven. That's inclusive, amazingly inclusive. But he follows it up with this. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, that's exclusive. So we see it in the same breath. Jesus talking about the inclusive exclusivity of the church. Sometimes this even extends to the family. Jesus said in the 10th chapter of Matthew, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own Households, that, my dear brothers and sisters, is exclusivism. He even says that we need to beware of those. Very, probably exactly the way John is, 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 is dealing with this. Beware of those kind of people because you don't know whether they're actual prophets or not. He says this once again in Matthew. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So, brothers and sisters, my point is this. There is no doubt that the Bible does not teach that the kingdom of God is an exclusive place. It is an exclusive organization. But by the same token, it is extraordinarily Inclusive. So what do I mean by that? What is Jesus meaning here? And, and how are we supposed to interpret this? It actually isn't that difficult, really, if you don't take it out of context. In, in, in Luke 11, Jesus is talking about the gospel. He's talking about discipleship. He's talking about those who will follow him. And, and he's making it clear that the kingdom of God in the fact of salvation and redemption is very exclusive. There's only one way. And, and here he's talking about the, the, the inclusiveness not based on external criteria. See, that's the big problem that John has made. John has made a value judgment, a discernment, not really a discernment, but just a judgment of that person not based on anything but the fact that he wasn't part of them. He wasn't of their group. That's the very essence of divisiveness within the church. So here's, here's the bottom line of inclusive exclusivity. 
The kingdom of heaven is exclusive in the sense that there is only one Christ. There is only one gospel. There is only one salvation. There is only one church. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To Nicodemus, he says, unless you are born again, unless you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, unless your heart is changed, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That's exclusive. It is extraordinarily exclusive, but it all is focused on Jesus Christ. It is faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. That brings us to a saving knowledge of uh, or the, the redemption and entering into the kingdom of God. On our own, we can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. That's why he went to the cross. As a sacrificial, substitutionary atonement for our sins so that they would be paid for. So that they could be forgiven and then imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ so that we can stand before God. That is an exclusive group of people when you consider that most of the world rejects that. Rejects it outright. Even if they are taught the gospel a hundred times, they reject it. And so therefore, there is an exclusivity to the kingdom of God. But that said, brothers and sisters, within the church, there is the most amazing inclusivity. You see, the culture that we live in is trying desperately to find uh, uh, an inclusiveness. They call it different things. But it fails miserably because all of it is planted in in a poisoned heart. All of it is planted for the wrong reason and pride takes over. It is Christianity and Christianity alone that bridges all of the distinctions that divide humanity. Because there is only one Lord and that is Jesus Christ. And there is the head of the church and then there is everyone else. We're all the same in Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians when he puts it this way. If I can find it. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ. It does not mean that there are not varying levels of authority as Jesus has set it up in his church. That does not what it means. But what it means that in the eyes of a holy God, we are All fallen sinners. Not a one of us deserves to be in the kingdom of God. Every single one of us goes to deserve to go to hell and suffer his wrath for an eternity. But by the grace and the compassion and the love of God, we have been redeemed. We don't have a foot to stand on. So there is no one who should look at another and say, I am better than he or she. Not in the context of redemption. So therefore, there is a total inclusiveness. The things that the world can simply not deal with, the Christian church does. It does not matter what nation you are from or what country you're from, what race you are, what the color of your skin is, what your ethnicity is, what your background is, what your culture is. It doesn't matter where you came from, the degree of sinfulness that you lived in your life. It doesn't matter your economic strata. It doesn't matter your social or your political or your educational strata. None of that matters because Christianity bridges all of those distinctions. There is one body of Jesus Christ and it is all inclusive so brothers and sisters there is an exclusivity but within that exclusivity perfect 
inclusivity. And therein, brothers and sisters, is where we find the unity of the church. It is in the exclusivity and inclusivity. And we start messing with that. We start messing with the exclusivity and saying anyone who wants to come in and say they love Jesus, man, I'm going to accept you and say that you're going to heaven. That's the worst thing that you can tell someone if it's not true. So so when we start changing the rules, that's when things start falling apart. So that brings up a question. A question that I kind of want to spend the last few minutes that I have here with you talking about. How do you know the difference? Because we're talking about the inclusive exclusivity and the unity that can be found in that. But how do you know the difference? How should John have reacted, in other words? How could he have possibly known the difference that this person, that he was excluding because they weren't part of his group, how could he have known that he was uh, really a brother that, that should have been brought into their fellowship? Well, the first characteristic, and I don't have time to go back over it, That's the reason last week is important. Because the first characteristic is that the the dominant nature of your soil, if you will. The dominant nature of your your heart is humility. Because if you plant this entire situation into the soil of pride, you're going to get division. And you're not going to make the right decisions. That's the problem with John. He has made a discernment not based on the real criteria. He has tried to redefine what the exclusivity of the church is. And that has been done over and over again throughout the history of the church. If you don't belong to my little group, then you are an enemy of the gospel. And quite often we accuse people that we don't have in our particular group that follow our doctrines, that come to our church or our denomination. We say they're not even Christians. God's bigger than that, folks. And so we need to be paying attention to the inclusivity of the church in that way. So the humility is a big, huge part. But again, as I said, I don't have time to go into that today. Within the context of the sanctification, there are some practical things that we can do. There are some practical ways that we can gain a greater level of discernment as far as these vital aspects of the kingdom are concerned. And I know you're going to be totally surprised by this. But the first place we turn is scripture. Okay. The first place that we go is to the word of God. It amazes me, brothers and sisters, it amazes me. That people would expect to have spiritual discernment who never crack the book. Who never look at it. Who don't study it. There's a biblical illiteracy within the church that is alarming. People have stopped studying scripture. They don't know it. They can't quote it. They haven't tucked it away. How on earth are you going to make a decision of who is for Jesus or who is against him if you don't know what Jesus says on the matter? If if you don't know God, if you don't know what, what he says, then how are you going to make discernments? How are you going to make judgments? Because you won't even know what the basics of the criteria are. So, brothers and sisters, it starts with the word. I know that I harp on this. I say it week after week. But it, 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 is, it is just the, the core. I mean, that's how we know what God wants. That's why we know what pleases him is to turn to the word of God. The second, and I know that you will find this extremely uh, uh, surprising as well. The second is to ask for help, to pray to the Lord. You, you pray for everything else. You pray for health and wealth and prosperity. 
You pray for the good of all of your, your loved ones. You pray for the good of your church. You pray for the good of your country. You pray for all kinds of things. Do you pray for discernment? Do you pray for wisdom in, in that sense? Do you pray that you would know the actual will of God in things? That he would give you discernment in spiritual matters. So pray for that. And as a church, we also pray for the same things. We pray for buildings. We pray for the budget. We pray for all kinds of things. Do we pray for unity within the church? Do we pray for unity with each other? Do we pray that we will be on the, uh, in, in the movement from pride to, to humility as a body? So that when God brings one of his little ones here, boy, they just fold right in because they've just come home. And it doesn't matter whether you and I, we pick this church up and we move to the other side of the world where they don't even speak a language we understand. It wouldn't matter because we're of the same heart. In Haiti, I used to go to the Sunday night services. There would usually be translation in the morning services. Quite often I would preach there. But I would go over on Sunday night and the whole thing would be in Creole. I wouldn't understand a word of it. But I I knew what was being said. And, and, and it was, I, I could, the, the heart was there. And, 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 and I was home in that place, even though we had a language difference, cultural difference, racial difference, every kind of difference you can imagine, financial difference. And yet we were one in the spirit because we have hearts that are bathed in humility. So therefore, to, to, um, to, to, to learn about his word is something that is hugely significant. Now, the, the third one here, and to learn about his word, to pray, are, are, are great ways that we can gain discernment. The third one you may not be familiar with. It may, well, the last one too, by the way, so you can relax. We're not going on. Um, it's to live the great commandments. To take them to heart, don't just know them, but to live them. And here's what I mean by that. In Matthew 22, when someone asked Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? They used to argue about those kinds of things. And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. In other words, hang everything. Everything should be seen through the prism of these two. So if you want to gain discernment, a great place to start is by loving God. Now, when I say loving God, I don't mean conjuring up within yourself a sentimental emotion. Because biblical love is wrapped up. I'm not saying it's emotionless by any means. But it's wrapped up in obedience. It is to pursue the will of God. To find out what it is that 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 he wants what what it is that pleases him because we're not doing this out of obligation we're doing this because we love god and guess what if you love god you're going to love his word and if you love his word you're going to be more familiar and easily pick out falsehood and if you're easily to pick out falsehood you're going to despise that falsehood and you're not going to be be, be so privy to allowing it in to your fellowship I love the passage that we read from the 119th chapter of John, I mean of of Psalms. Oh, how I love your law. You want to talk about discernment? Here it is. The psalmist is telling you how to be discerning. I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. 
That's discernment. For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. Brothers and sisters, it is not divisive to stand on the word of God. It is not divisive to know what God said in his word and to stand by it and uphold it. You will be accused of divisiveness because you don't bend, you don't yield, you don't uh, uh, water down what scripture says. But actually, you're not being divisive. It's those who want to change God's word who are divisive. So if you love God, you're going to love his word. And if you love his word, you're going to be able to identify falsehood. And if you're going to be able to identify falsehood, you're going to recognize it when it enters your church or when it tries to enter your life. That's discernment. But the second one, and and it's the last one, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, And I know that you may not have thought of it this way. But... When we are told to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are told to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And, and it means that, that the standards or, or what I do for myself, I would also want to do and see for someone else. I'd love them in the same way that I love myself. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm assuming that, well, I'm not assuming this is definitely for Christians. It is definitely for those of you who want to be disciples. Because you hold yourself to a standard. You you want to know the word of God. You want to know what God wants of you. And so you study it. And you hold it up as a mirror to look at yourself in. And ask yourself introspectively. Am I adhering to these words? Not because of obligation. Not because I'm trying to win brownie points with God. Not because I'm afraid he's going to hit me with a lightning bolt. But because I love him. Because I want to please him. I want to live according to his precepts. That if you are a true disciple is what you want. So why on earth Would you, when you see error or an egregious sin, either in your family members or your loved ones or people within your church, would you simply turn a deaf ear and a blind eye? And you would say, well, what we want is unity, right? Unity at the expense of truth. And so therefore, what I would do for myself... I would not allow myself to accept that false teaching. I would not allow myself to slip into that kind of egregious sin without me trying to stop myself according to the word of God. And yet when we see someone else doing it, we say, well, tolerance tells us we're not supposed to say anything. Because if I say anything, I want to be judgmental, right? And I don't want to be judgmental. Folks, there's a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference between loving someone And not wanting them to fall into egregious sin or error. And pointing it out to them. And looking down your long bony noses in judgment at them. So therefore stand for the word of God. And don't be afraid. When you're confronted with error. Either within your family. Within your sphere. Within your church. To stand up and do something about it. And if you don't think that you have the discernment, brothers and sisters, to do anything yourself, Matthew 18 gives you the, 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 the modus operandi, the method that we go about it. Take it to your elders. The elders of your church have been called of God to be shepherds of your soul. They will be held accountable for the spiritual well-being of the people of this church. And we take that extremely seriously here. In this little church. 
And so therefore, if you, if you see something, it's not gossip. I mean, it could be gossip if it's planted in the pride soil. Can you believe so-and-so is doing that? But if it is out of love and a desire and you've already confronted the person, it's gone no place, bring it to the elders. Let us talk about it. Let us try to deal with it in a biblical manner. If you don't have the discernment to confront error, let the elders of your church do it. Once again, brothers and sisters, there's a Ditch on the left and a ditch on the right. You stay out of the ditch on the right by being compassionate and seeking unity within the church. Don't find things to to disagree on and realize the things that are worth dividing over and not worth dividing over. If God had wanted it to be clear, the mode of baptism, he would have made it clear. We have no business separating over it. If God had made it, wanted to make it clear what's going to happen in the end time, he would have made it clear. But we don't know. Different opinions. So therefore, we don't break fellowship over those kinds of things. Over the gospel, yes. Over false teaching, yes. Over questioning the sovereignty of God, yes. Over questioning the validity of God's word, yes. There are things that we need to separate on, but search for unity within the church and be ready to stand for the truth. Even if, it's, if, if, if it makes you unpopular and even if it causes what you consider to be disunity, actually it doesn't. It maintains and protects unity and it is the expression of love where letting it go is not. Let me leave you with this. Even after everything that I've said, we're still fallen creatures. We still make mistakes. We still reach situations and we scratch our head and we say, Lord, what on earth are we supposed to do here? We turn to the word and we don't find the answer. We pray and we don't find the answer. We go to the elders of our church and they don't know the answer. What do you do? Well, all I can tell you is when you've considered everything, err on the side of love and compassion. Err on the side of love. If you're going to make an error, or as my old professor used to say, err. If you're going to err, err on the side of compassion. Err on the side of of love, But let me tell you something. If you err on the side of love and compassion, you're probably going to get burned. Because the culture and the enemy takes advantage of that kind of a heart and tries to turn it against you, to, to, to jaundice you, to, to, to make it so you don't do it again. But that's the way Jesus was. Jesus would never, he would never, ever compromise the truth. But he was always compassionate in the way he did it. And since we are fallen, we can't always determine if you err on the side of compassion, that's the better place to err. So here's the way I want to leave you. And this is the way that, that I see it. As you search for this spiritual discernment, seek the truth, stand firm on the truth, know the word of God, pray incessantly, Turn to God in love and try to do his will, know his will, and then to uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're going to err, err on the side of compassion. Let's pray. Well, Father, I know that these are uh, sometimes difficult things for us to comprehend. That the idea of an exclusivity that carries within it an inclusivity is not something that we fully understand or we normally see in the world around us. But Lord, help us understand that you have determined both. You have not only determined the exclusivity of your kingdom, you have in turn in, in determined the inclusivity of that same kingdom. May we 
Use your word as a model. May we turn to it and study it and learn and know your heart from it. And through that and through prayer and through our love of you and our love for each other, dear Lord, that we would find discernment. And through that, the only church that we have control over or or anything to say about is, is this one. Lord, may we find unity. Unity the way you intended it to be. Unity surrounding you. As the, as, as the great unifying factor of our church. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.